Hi, I'm Greg. Good to see you all here this wonderful Sunday morning. I, I uh, just get so excited seeing Ivana. Um, you know, she just come up to, came up through our uh, youth program through Echo, and then to see her just uh, committing herself to that wonderful work in Mexico and just giving, pouring herself out. That's that's what it's about. And where she goes, we go. And so we want to be coming around her and supporting her in prayer and financially and, and all of that. So I encourage you to stop by there um, after the service and say hi to her. And if, if it's at all possible, stick around uh, for the barbecue and then join us at the, at the lake. Uh, that is, I'm with Mary. It's one of the highlights of the year. Uh, just to bless the time. See, these people surrendering to Christ uh, through, through baptism. Uh, thanks to Sandra for giving an excellent, wonderful message last week. Yes, she's a blessing to us. She's a blessing, yes. And so summers, as all of you who are native Minnesotans know, uh, you know, we, we take our summers very seriously. Uh, we have three, four months out of the year where we have to hibernate, and so we tend to pack everything, a lot of stuff, into our summers. And that means that church time during the summer can be kind of a hit and miss. It's just always in flux. It's helter-skelter, and um, my life's no different from that. Uh, last week was up, had a little time with my family and uh, grandkids, and uh, just kind of rented out a little cabin. It was wonderful. Um, but for the next two months, I'm going to be in and out, uh, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we've got some really wonderful, uh, marvelous guest speakers that are going to be coming in. Uh, but we were asking the question, what should we do while I'm here? Um, is, I'm kind of dotting in and out, and we thought... It, Rather than coming back to Colossians every time, as important as that is, uh, but that just felt too fragmented. We thought it'd be good to have a theme that I hit on whenever I'm in the pulpit here. And so we looked at the, you know, the sort of the, the menu that we've had over the last four or five years. We want to always be making sure that we're, we're giving a, a well-rounded diet here, uh, feeding people. And um, what we noticed was this. We have, from the start, put an absolute highest priority on prayer. Uh, the church was founded on this conception that uh, it was a phrase I gave in one of the first sermons of uh, Woodland Hills and became kind of one of our slogans, and that, that is that we're to operate on the assumption that nothing of kingdom value happens outside of prayer. Uh, God just puts such a, an importance and urgency on prayer. And yet we've noticed that in the last three years or so, we haven't really spoken specifically on this topic. And so uh, the leadership of Woodland Hills Church thought it'd be good that whenever I'm in the pulpit here, I'll return to this, this topic of prayer. So this is the first of a series, though it won't be uh, back-to-back kind of a series. It'll be kind of scattered out over the next couple months. But it's very important. And since we uh, hit on this, this theme, I'll, t- I'll tell you that I have, uh, over the last two, three weeks, been developing a, a growing, intense passion about it, a, a sense of gravity, uh, of, of urgency about this. And, uh, to be honest with you, I, I've had a growing sense of, of conviction. And I've often shared here that one of my jobs is to make sure that I never suffer alone. I, I'm inviting other people in on this conviction, and so I'm thinking here that uh, this is going to be a series, uh, maybe starting with this message, that ought to be, for many of us, uh, very convicting. I, as I've been preparing for this series, have just, oh, the Lord's just kind of revealed that I have backed off and throttled a little bit in my prayer life. And, um, and this is a call, a call to not just return to a committed prayer life, but to 
go further with it and become more intense with it. So this, this message this morning is a foundation for this series. And it's just about how important this actually is, how, how, how seriously God takes prayer. And so we entitled this message, God Needs Prayer. He doesn't need it the way we need prayer. We need prayer to get redeemed and sanctified and forgiven and all that. He doesn't need it in that sense. But God, by his own sovereign decision, the way he created the world and structured the world, he needs his people to pray, as we're going to see here in, in, in a little bit. It's a matter of necessity. It's not just that he would like it. It would be a nice option. It would be desirable. No, there, there's a necessity and even an urgency that attaches to prayer. And so it's appropriate to start off this series on prayer by prayer. So talk with me to God here for a little bit. That's all prayer is, is just talking to God. So Abba, Father, um, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, your, your presence is here. Uh, and God, it's an awesome, wonderful, mind-blowing, beautiful responsibility that you've given us to partner with you in prayer. I know that I have not fulfilled that very well, and I suspect that's probably true of a lot of folks who are going to be hearing this message. I pray, God, that, that there would be no shame, but there would be conviction. And I pray, God, that you use this message uh, by the power of your Spirit, invade it with your kingdom presence to form in our lives um, a commitment and a faith and a confidence in the power of prayer. Let it be done, Lord. Bring your kingdom. Let your will be done in this message as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. One of the things that we're up against when we're talking about prayer is that uh, it's a cultural thing. Um, we in the West, in particular in America, we tend to be very pragmatic. We, we like to see how things work. We have confidence when we can connect the dots between cause and effect. It's a lot easier for us to be involved in an exercise program, for example, when you can see the difference it makes. When, when the pounds are coming off and the waist is getting a little trimmer and you're feeling a little bit better, uh, well, we can stay motivated. But if uh, you engage in an exercise program and you don't see that it's making any difference, it seems like the older you get, the more that is the case. Uh, it, well, it's just, you know it is doing you good, you know it, it, it's, it's, you need it, but it's harder to stay invested because you can't see it. We like to be able to see a cause and effect relationship between things. And when we don't see that, it can feel to us like we're wasting our time. And I, for one, hate to waste time. So I've been praying, more or less, for 39 years since I became a, a follower of Jesus back in 1974. And yet I still, I've had kind of a, a commitment over the last 10 years or so to spend the first 20 to 30 minutes of every day in prayer. Uh, just laying there before God and, and just offering up to him whatever comes to mind, whatever, uh, however the Spirit leads. Sometimes I'm just laying in his presence. And there are, are moments where that's a wonderful experience. I mean, just sometimes it shows up in incredible ways. But not always, and I can't even say that that's the norm. There are other times where I'm laying there and there's a part of my brain that's thinking, Greg, you're at your best when you first get out of bed. Your mind is sharpest. You're most productive. You could be writing right now. You could be reading right now, studying, doing something that would really be of consequence. Instead, you're talking to the ceiling. Do you ever feel like you're talking to the ceiling or the wall when you're praying? And, and you'll keep on doing it out of commitment, but man, it's hard. It feels like a waste of time. It doesn't fit into our pragmatism. 
Our, 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 our desire to see a cause and effect relationship. Prayer usually, I mean, sometimes you pray and, and there'll be an immediate outstanding result. But more often than not, I've found that you can't connect the dots between your time spent in prayer and the outcome. And when there is an apparent outcome, usually even that can be explained another way. Andrea gave this testimony a little bit ago. Uh, and, and this appointment was set out several months down in the fall. And so she's in the shower, she's praying, and she gets out of the shower, and boom, the phone rings, and, and they, she got bumped up, you know, and, and, and she gets to see the doctor real soon. And we all go, praise God, yay. But even she said, it could have been just a coincidence. There's always other ways of explaining things. You know, did God really uh, have a person cancel just so Andrea could get in there? Or, you know, how did God influence? We, we don't know how God influenced that. And there's always a lot of variables that go on, and things could always go a different way. So, so even when we see the outcome of prayer, it takes faith to affirm it. It takes faith to pray. and takes faith to affirm the answer to prayer. And that doesn't fit into our pragmatism, so prayer can feel like a waste of time. Especially, as Andrea has, when you pray over and over again, with passion, and you don't see the outcome that you're praying for. It's tough. It takes a lot of faith. And it's just like God to wire it into his kingdom, uh, something that is so important. It's absolutely foundationally important, and yet we have to crucify our natural thinking to do it. It's just like the odd God that we worship, that he would orchestrate things that way. Um, it really requires us to crucify our our, our desire to control things, to measure things, to be able to prove that this is making a difference. We have to just take it on faith. And then there's a theological thing that a lot of us are up against. It's far more pervasive than I think people realize. Um, we have a theology that to some degree works against this idea that God would need prayer, that, that prayer is really a matter of urgency. It's a widespread idea that if God's all-powerful, then he must be in some way controlling everything. Everything is, is, is the outcome of his will. And see, if everything is being controlled by God, then what possible difference can we make? If the future is already exhaustively settled, it's all part of his scripted plan, well, then there's nothing you can do about it. It's there. And we have this idea that if God's all good, well, then whatever's good, he's going to be doing already, whether we ask him or not. And whatever's not good, he's not going to do whether we ask him or not. So why bother to take the time to ask him to do things? It doesn't fit into our theological schemata. If, if everything is being controlled by the all-powerful God, well, then the only difference prayer can really make uh, is, well, it doesn't change God or change things. It can only change you. And so you hear this a lot. Prayer isn't for God's sake. He doesn't need prayer. Uh, we're the ones who need prayer. It's for our sake. Even my hero, one of my top heroes in the, in the, in the Christian faith, C.S. Lewis, even he fell into this at one point anyways. He has other places where he very eloquently talks about uh, the, the efficacy of prayer, how prayer works. But there's one point in his life, and unfortunately he became famous for it, where he fell into this, this kind of mantra that we hear a lot about God. Uh, prayer changes us, not God. Here's a, here's a scene from the movie Shadowlands, which is a movie about his life. Watch it. What news? Uh, good news, I think, Harry. Yes, good news. Very glad, Jack. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you. Christopher can scoff, but I know how hard you've been praying. Huh? Now God is answering your prayer. That's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because, I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. 
doesn't change God, it changes me. He's got very little on this player. Now that sounds pious. Um, maybe I'm just a carnal pig, but, but I, 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 prayer doesn't flow out of me out of a necessity. I can't help myself. I, my problem is that I can help myself very well, thank you. Um, it, it takes a lot of commitment to pray. It doesn't flow out of me. I, and hear this preacher with his preacher voice. God has answered your prayer. Um, I mean, C.S. Lewis almost takes offense. I don't pray to get an answer. I, I pray because it changes me. Really? I mean, you don't pray to get an answer? Well, seems to me that's odd. You, you don't pray to get an answer to prayer? Well, then why would you pray? Well, just to change me. I, I, I submit to you that is not a biblical way of looking at things. Now, prayer does change us. C.S. Lewis is right about that. It changes us, and, and, and it, it humbles us, and it makes us aware of our dependency on God, and, and it gives God a chance to, to form us. So, yes, it does change us, but from a biblical perspective, that's not why we pray. That's one of the outcomes of prayer. That's one of the results, the consequences, the side effects of prayer, but it's not why we pray. When we pray for something, we do it to get the prayer answered. Um, it, it's, it's to change things. It is to impact God and change the world. In fact, in the Bible, there are more if-then statements associated with prayer than any other single human activity. If-then. If my people pray, well, then this follows. One of the classic examples is, is 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7. Many of you have heard this verse before, where the Lord says, If my people, look at that if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then, it's a consequence statement, a conditional, if then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If then. If my people will pray, they'll, 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 I'll hear and they'll be forgiven. If my people pray, they'll have healing in the land. Which implies that if my people don't pray, they're not going to receive the forgiveness and not going to receive the healing. Things hang in the balance on whether or not God's people pray. There's a lot of things. and You, you can't read the Bible very long and not see this. It's, it permeates the very fabric of Scripture. There's a lot of things that God would like to have happen that won't happen unless the people of God agree with him and intercede on, on behalf of others uh, to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Another classic passage dealing with the power of prayer, that it doesn't just change us, it changes things, is James chapter 5, where he says, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, what I never noticed till this week, when I read this passage in Greek, is that James is actually uh, doing a play on words here. He uses the same word, energeo in Greek, the same word to describe how we pray as to describe the outcome of prayer. And the word energeo, we get the word energy from it. Uh, it, it, it. You could really translate it to energize. And energy is what performs work. It's what accomplishes things. And so what James is really saying is the energized prayer energizes much. When we invest energy into prayer, and sometimes that passage is translated the fervent prayer or the passionate prayer, the energized prayer of a righteous person, and whoever is in Christ is considered righteous. The energized prayer of the person in Christ, it energizes much. It releases an energy into the world, a kingdomizing force into this world that would not otherwise be there. 
God, by his own sovereign design, could have set up the world any way he wants, but because a relationship with him is at the center of everything, and relationships are all about communication, communication and relationship are almost synonymous, it, it makes sense for God to wire it into the creation that talking with him affects everything. In fact, as I read scripture, talking with him affects things more than any other thing that we do. As I said, there's more if-then statements associated with prayer than any other single human activity. In that sense, God binds himself to this in a way that he needs his people to intercede and to pray. Ian Bounds, who was a famous author of the 19th century, wrote a classic book on this called Power Through Prayer. And um, he, he says at one point, he says, God shapes the world through prayer. It's by his own design the way that he wants to shape the world. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be, and the mightier the forces against evil. And he is exactly right. Yes, prayer changes us, but that's a consequence of prayer. We pray because we're told that it makes a difference. We pray because we're told that things genuinely hang in the balance on whether or not we pray. We, we pray because God has told us he wants to have a partner uh, called the Bride of Christ, who consists of all who say yes to Jesus. He's the husband of the bride. And God wants this bride to be a bride who's got authority and a power that the world does not have. And we access that authority and that power through prayer. God shapes the world largely through prayer. God shapes the world and pushes back evil largely through prayer. And the more prayer there is, the more the kingdom is brought into this world. That's why Jesus said, in the famous prayer, he said, When you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now these are not necessarily the words we always have to recite, but he's giving us really the theology of prayer. This is the style of prayer. We first sanctify the Father's name. Hallowed be your name. It means your name's set apart. You keep it apart from everything else. You don't get it mixed up with all your personal opinions and all your politics and, and use the name of the Lord in vain. That's what it is to use the name of the Lord in vain is, is we use God's authority to buttress our own authority. No, we don't. Keep it separate. It's a distinct kind of authority which is released through a distinct kind of activity and that is prayer. And then when you pray, you pray this way. Father, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And this is what it is for God's kingdom to come. It simply is for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To the extent that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom has come. So all prayer is a, is, is a function of, of the bride agreeing with the groom to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer isn't this sort of gimme, gimme, grab bag you know, God's a little Santa Claus, a slot machine that we get to have our Mercedes-Benz singing a Janice Joplin song or something like that. No, it's, it's not there for our personal you know, little you know, benefiting, though God loves to bless his children for sure. But prayer is about the, the bride using a unique kind of authority that God's given to us, where we agree with him to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. Now, see, here, here's what's so, so important for us to see, that and then here's where that theology can just so go against, go against uh, our, our grasping the urgency of prayer. It's very hard to pray, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if you believe on any level that God's will is already being done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's controlling everything, if God's pulling all the strings, well then, there's, there's, there's no necessity to prayer. His will's already being done. And you may still pray out of obedience because he tells you to, but... Only to the degree that there's a congruity between our, our mind and our heart. Only to the degree that it makes sense to pray 
you have a theology that can frame prayer, only then will you really get passionately involved in prayer. I, I'll get out of bed at 2 in the morning on the promptings of the Holy Spirit to pray for somebody if I really think it matters. But I'm not going to do it just to change me. That can wait till 7 in the morning. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not going to do it just because I, 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 you know, there's a rule that says I'm supposed to. That will wait till 7 in the morning. It's only when I sense that prayer is as important as any other activity, maybe more important than any other activity that I do. I get out of the house at 2 in the morning if, uh, if someone's life was in danger, if the house was burning down, if a robber was coming in or something like that. I get out of bed for that. Well, if prayer has that kind of importance, well, then we'll do it at 2 in the morning uh, uh, if the Spirit leads us to. But to change ourselves or just to be involved in a pro forma activity, no, that, that can wait. And see, as if we take Scripture seriously, and we must, then, then prayer is a matter of urgency. Things genuinely hang in the balance, which means, folks, that God is not right now pulling all the strings. There's a lot of things, a lot of things that God would like to do, but he won't do, and I even will say in a moment, can't do by his own decision unless his bride agrees with him on those things. Yes, God is all-powerful, no doubt about that. Absolutely, unequivocally, unabashedly, uncompromisingly, without dilution, distinction, he's all-powerful. Yes, 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 yes. But here's the thing. we got to take great care that we don't assume that we know what that means. When we use the word power, we have to be very careful not to project onto God our fallen, sinful human ideas about power. To say God's all-powerful does not mean he's going to act the way a human would act if a human had all the power. <laughs> to say God's all-powerful does not mean that he, he wields power the way the kings and the princes and the lords and the presidents and, and the, the, the gods that human makes after their own, own image. It doesn't mean that he exercises power the way they do. Humans hoard power. We, we grab onto it. We're threatened by other people having power. And, and, and throughout history, rulers and kings and princes have, have tried to just control as much as possible to enforce their will on others. And see, if we're not careful, we can project onto God that idea of power. And so to say God's all-powerful means that he's the, the super Zeus God, the super Caesar God, who just rules by control. We have to, in all things, and I say this all the time because it's so foundational, we have to take great care that we let God define who he is to us and not project our stuff onto him. Uh, he, he makes us after his image. We can't, we're not supposed to make him in our image. And he, he, he gives us his definition of himself, including his definition of power in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. And so all of our thinking about God, whenever you're, you're, you're thinking about any attribute of God or any aspect of God, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, we preach the crucified Christ. Listen to this. This is beautiful and radical. We preach the crucified Christ. He's a stumbling block to Jews. He's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, and you're called if you've said yes to his call, to those who are called Christ, he's talking about the crucified Christ here. The crucified Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The crucified Christ, that crucified Messiah, is God's power and is God's wisdom. Now, from a natural perspective, whether Jewish or Gentile, nothing could look more foolish 
than this crucified Messiah. And nothing could look weaker than this crucified Messiah. It, it seems like the, outrageous to suggest that the crucified Messiah has got more power than the Caesar or the Pilate who crucified him. From a natural perspective, the kings and the princes and the lords of this world have a lot more power than the crucified Messiah. In fact, no one has less power than the crucified Messiah. So it's ludicrous to say that that's the wisdom of God. That's stupid. And it's ludicrous to say that that's the power of God. That's weak. Ah, but the kingdom of God turns everything on its head. Uh, it, 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 it reverses everything. Because Paul says, no, this crucified Messiah is the power of God. Uh, this is, God, this is what God looks like when he's flexing his omnipotent muscle. When God flexes his omnipotent muscle, it doesn't look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, a cosmic version of, of Zeus or, or Thor God. No, it looks like the crucified Messiah. This is God being all-powerful because his power is synonymous with his beautiful, incomprehensible, unwavering, self-sacrificial love for enemies. That's the power of God. And there's no greater force in the universe than that kind of love. Amen. That's the omnipotence of God. That's the only force that can change a person from the inside out. You can coerce a person to do anything except change their attitude towards you. In fact, if you, the more you coerce an enemy, the more the hardened they are in their enemy status. Only self-sacrificial love, the kind of power that God reveals on the cross, only that can change, transform a person from the inside out. That's the power of God. We, and so if we submit to Christ, instead of projecting our own fallen views, making God after our own petty image, if we accept what God says about himself in the person of Jesus Christ, we realize that God's omnipotence isn't the kind of omnipotence that, that, that even most Christians tend to ascribe to God. Most Christians, when they think about God's power, they're still thinking like pagans. They still make God to be a super Caesar, a super Zeus or something of the sort, instead of the crucified Messiah. And see, here's the difference. When, when, when a, a petty Zeus god, uh, or a god made in the image of Caesar or Pilate, or any of the kings and princes of this world, when that god would create human beings, well, see, those, those deities are threatened by other people having power. They, they lack the confidence to ever share with others. They have to hoard it all themselves because they're insecure. They're small. They're petty. They're puny. But the true God, the true God who's revealed in Jesus Christ, he is the great God. And this God, this is the God who reigns, not by lording over others and controlling them like, like marionettes on a sovereign fingers, do exactly as I decree. No, this is a God who reigns by giving himself away. This is a God whose very nature is, is self-sacrificial, whose very nature is being poured out towards others. So this God, when he creates human beings, he doesn't make them marionettes. No, a puny God would do that, but the, the great God, he shares. He shares. He shares everything. He even shares his glory. <laughs> I read John 17. I, I, I hear people say, oh, God's glory is only in himself. He, you know, he only glorifies himself. Jesus says, Father, in John 17, I've given to them the glory that you've given to me. God's glory is his being poured out, his otherness, his, his, his sharing of himself. It's the radiance of his love that is poured out for others. And so this God, who's the true God, the confident God, not like the petty Zeus gods of this world, this God, when he creates human beings, he creates human beings, praise God. He, and he shares say-so with them. He, he gives some of the power away. And he says, I give to you a domain of influence. You have say-so in what comes to pass. And when God gives that say-so, because he wants a genuine relationship with genuine people, and to be a person is not to be a marionette on the strings of a sovereign hand. It's to be a decision maker, a person who's, who has influence on, on how things go. 
And, and so God gives this say-so away and then says, now will you, out of relationship with me, turn around and resubmit it to me so that now my, my rule will be carried out, not unilaterally, but out of relationship with you. And let's always be talking about this. And as we talk about this, well, that's how my will gets carried out. As we relate, as we love, as we fellowship with the Father, now his will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. But this is, it takes a bold God to do that, a confident God, a God who's not insecure, uh, a God who would put himself in a position of need. It's a sign of strength, not of weakness. Now, the fallen human mind thinks that if you're invulnerable, well, then now you're strong. Those invulnerable, person who can't get hurt, that's a strong one. But we all know if you've got any kind of healthy relational insight at all, that's not a sign of strength at all. It's a sign of weakness. The true God, when he creates us, he gives say-so. This is seen right in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. It says that we're made in God's image. Oh, I've got to hurry up here. We're made in God's image. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which the Israelites were part of, they used this concept of being in the image of a God. But they applied it to kings and to statues that were consecrated to the God. They were in the image of God. It was, it was, it was a widespread concept. And, and calling the king or the statue uh, in the image of God, it meant you are a representative of God. Uh, you reflect the reign and the power of God in a certain region. So the biblical author takes this concept that was applied only to kings and to these idols and now applies it to all human beings. You're in the image of God. And what he's saying is, you are a king. You're created to be a king and a queen who represents God on earth, who represents the rule of God here on earth, who carries out God's will here on earth on this region of the cosmos. We are to be the kings and the queens, the viceroys of God. You may be a nothing by the standards of this world, but you got to know that you were created to be a, a king and a queen. Praise God. You were created to rule. Amen. You've got a dignity and, and an authority that is just magnificent and awesome. And a central part of that authority is the power, the energy that you can release through prayer, through fellowship with God. And so we find that even in the New Testament, this remains the goal. We lost that authority when we rebelled against God in the primordial past. I read about that in Genesis 3. But Jesus restored it for, for us. And so all who are now resubmitted to Jesus are reinstated as, in this place of rule and authority. And so we read in the New Testament over and over again things like this. Uh, Paul says that if we endure, we shall reign with him. God wants a, a bride who sits on the throne with him. Revelations 5, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. Priests who mediate the presence of God to the world. We're in the image of God. And we will reign on earth. Revelation 19 says the same thing. They shall reign with him. Uh, Revelation 22, uh, they will reign forever and ever. The goal from the start has been and still is for us to reign, to rule with him. Uh, and a central way in which we do that, this is our dignity and our responsibility. A central way we do that is through the power of prayer. Praise God. This is also what Paul's getting at when he says that we're, co we're fellow workers with God. Uh, it, twice, uh, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6, we are God's fellow workers. Now he uses this word, synergos, synergos. The prefix sin, S-Y-N, it means alongside of, um, or in relationship with, with synonymous, synchronicity, all those words reflect that. So alongside of, and then ergos, well that's, that, that's the same root as the word we saw James use, 
about how we're to pray in the outcome of prayer. It's what does work, ergos, energy. So what, 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 what this concept conveys is that we are to be a people who put our energy alongside God's energy to bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. We are to be a, a people who work alongside God working. We have a people, we're to be a people who have authority alongside God's authority. See, this would be utterly impossible if God was like the petty gods of this world who hoard power. If God was already doing everything, there's no room. Oh, I just got a great pun here. There's no room for sin. There's no room for S-Y-N, because you can't come alongside of one who's controlling everything. But there's also no room for sin, S-I-N, because if he was controlling everything, there wouldn't be any sin. But guess what? There is sin. And there's a whole lot of stuff that's not part of God's will. And all of it reflects the fact that he's not pulling all the strings. And what he wants to do about, oh, I'm getting all this stuff here. What he wants to do about sin, S-I-N, is to have a people who sin, S-Y-N, to confront the sin, S-I-N. Ha! God, yes, God overcomes. Woo! I, I didn't get that the first two services. That honestly just, just, just hit me now. Man, that Oh, I can work with this. Now he overcomes S-I-N by his people being willing to do the S-Y-N. It's as we partner with him that we bring about his will on earth as it is in heaven. This idea that God controls it all, it leaves no room for that. And it undermines the urgency of prayer. The fact of the matter is that God is a God who puts himself in a position where he needs his people to agree with him. Paul Bilheimer in this great book called Destined for the Throne one of the best books on prayer I've ever read. A little short thing. I encourage you to get it. That and Watchman Nee's book, uh, The Praying Ministry of the Church. Just fantastic books on the urgency of prayer. But he likens it to a trust in a bank that needs two signatures to be released. The bank has to sign it, and the person receiving the trust has to receive it. And only it uh, has to sign it. And only if there's the two signatures will the trust fund be released. If, if there's only one, well, then it still stays locked up. So also, Billheimer says... That God has set aside a reservoir of power. Think of it like this. A reservoir of, 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 of energy, of, of, of say-so. And for this reservoir of energy to be released, he needs his bride to say yes. And to commit to laboring with him. We're practicing, Bilheimer says, we're practicing for our reigning on earth. We are here carrying out. We don't wait till heaven to start doing this. Right here and now, we're start to, we're to exercise the authority that God always wanted us to have. And a large part of that authority is found in prayer. When we agree with God, there's stuff that gets released from the heavens that otherwise wouldn't get released. That's behind every one of the if-then statements in Scripture that applies to prayer. There are tons of things that God would love to do. But he will not do, he's bound himself not to be able to do it unless his bride says yes and agrees with him. I, mean, I, I just wonder how much healing does God, would God love to see being poured out at Woodland Hills Church and, 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 and elsewhere? Because sickness and illness and death are not, not his, his part of his original design for creation. No, this is, this is S-I-N. And to confront it, he wants his people to do the S-Y-N, to come alongside and, and to agree uh, with him, but how much healing he would love to see poured out, but he needs his bride to agree. How, how, much, how many families would he love to see restored, but he needs his, the, his bride to agree with him on this and to be interceding for families. How, how many marriages could be recovered, but he needs his people to be agreeing with him about this. How, how much violence would he love to just eradicate off our streets? How many wars would he love to prevent around the globe? How many families would he love to stop? How much poverty? How much starvation? How much rebellion? How much crime would he love to just see being pushed back? But he needs, N-E-E-D-S, genuinely needs his people 
to be on their knees and interceding on behalf of others to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. You can find many examples in the Bible where God couldn't do what he wanted to do because he couldn't find anyone to stand in the gap. And folks, we are his go-to on this. It is our dignity, our wonderful... God, we get to count. I mean, this is, we, we're not just people who are characters living out his script that he wrote by himself an eternity ago. No, we are agents whom he entrusts to help write the script. And we do it with every decision we make, and we do it in prayer. Uh, we're not just to wait for the future to see what the future holds. We're to be a people who work with God to create the future, the future that he wants. We have genuine say-so, and it's, a, it's our dignity as kings and queens and ambassadors of the kingdom. It's our dignity. It's also our responsibility. And it has an, awesome, an awesomeness to it because it means that things genuinely hang in the balance here. God isn't playing games. This isn't charades. It's not a lot of sort of pretend as if it really mattered. It really does. And see, we, we, we know that we've got this authority on a physical level with our decisions. Our decisions affect one another, for better or for worse. And sometimes lives may hang in the balance. If I'm up hiking in the woods and I see a person who slipped off an edge and is hanging by one branch and they're going to fall into the abyss if, if, if I don't help them, whether they live or die depends on whether I'm willing to risk my life and help them. Sometimes lives hang in the balance. If you decide to get drunk and go out driving, well, you just put a lot of lives at risk. And, and you may, there may be some kid out there that's going to lose their life because of your decision. Lives hang in the balance on what we do. Can we be a people who believe that prayer could have that much, if not more, authority? That things, what if getting out of bed, what if a life hung in the balance on whether you were willing to obey the promptings of the Spirit and pray at 2 in the morning? Why wouldn't it? Because it hangs in the balance with our other decisions sometimes. Can we be a people who take prayer that seriously? Our cultural mindset, where we like to be able to measure cause and effect, and then this influence of this theology tends to undermine that. We don't take prayer very seriously. Let's be honest about it. It feels like a waste of time. But we need to confront that cultural mindset, which is pure flesh, and we need to confront that theology, which is just unbiblical. And be a people who genuinely accept the responsibility and awesome significance that God has given to his bride. What area does God need you to intercede for? Need. And, and just right now, just be open to the Holy Spirit. Uh, start practicing it right now. Uh, where, where does God need you to talk to him? To release that trust fund. Uh, where does God need you to pour energy into to release energy, kingdom energy into this world? Maybe your marriage, and maybe your kids, and maybe something on your block, and maybe in, in your office, and maybe here at the church, it may be a, a social issue around the world. We're to be a people who are listening to God and then obeying as the Lord puts someone or something on our heart to take that very seriously, knowing that God wouldn't have bothered us with it if, if it wasn't important. Things hang in the balance. And believing that. Prayer really makes a difference. Whether you can measure it or not, doesn't matter. Just know by faith that no minute spent in prayer is a wasted minute. It always leaves the world more kingdomized than it was before you prayed. Can we be a people who take it that seriously? Amen? A people who accept this responsibility? 
prayer warriors I'm talking about. An army of prayer warriors. All right. I, I, I want to just challenge you to, to consider, if, you, if you're not already practicing this, take 20 minutes to a half hour a day. And the morning usually tends to be best. And start being, committing that to prayer. Uh, I mean, there are folks here, I'm sure, I'm sure, doing more than that and are called to do more than that. But, but for starters, see if you can carve that out. Um, a lot hangs in the balance here, folks. I'm going to close uh, just with a little benediction here, and I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come up here. This is why we have them here, because we believe in this. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever, uh, whatever it is, don't carry it out there with you on your own. Come up here and, uh, and pray with these folks. Because uh, we believe in the power of prayer, the church ministering to one another in prayer. Stop by the barbecue, support the missions, say hi, say hi to Ivana, support her on, on, on the things she's been called to, and commit to being a people of prayer. Would you stand? Abba, fathers, we leave this place. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll seal this on our heart. Convict us. Convict us. Remind us to be a people who are on our knees or how, whatever posture we pray with. Our hands lifted towards heaven. Father, uh, in, we believe, but help our unbelief uh, in the power of prayer, in the necessity of prayer, in the urgency of prayer. Lord, let this be a fire in our heart, a fire that grabs us and defines us and moves us and alters the way that we do our life, Lord God. Make us a, 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 an army of prayer warriors in Jesus' name and all of God's warriors said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Go and love on the world and pray for them.